0: Hello everybody and uh, welcome again to the Motorsport Magazine podcast and this month we are at Brands Hatch, my favourite motor racing circuit in the UK and of course we are with Jonathan Palmer. In fact uh, Jonathan's very kindly put breakfast on for us this morning. It's the first time we've ever had a podcast breakfast. Thank you very much Jonathan. He's just arrived in a very smart helicopter as well so things are clearly going well. Um, Nigel Roebuck is not here today. He's away in the United States for the American Grand Prix at Austin. Simon Aron is up in Scotland with Hannu Mikkula. But don't worry, we're here. The editor's here, Damian Smith. Our website editor is here, Ed Foster. Good morning, Jonathan.
1: Good morning, Rob. Welcome to uh a very sunny Brands Hatch, and I'm delighted to hear you start off by saying it's your favourite circuit. It's uh, it it's is. mine too, so we get off to a good note there.
0: Uh, it's definitely my favourite circuit in the UK, and we're, we're looking down on it, actually, from your office. And uh, it's an absolutely fantastic view. If only the British Grand Prix could come back, and perhaps you'll say something about that later on. Anyway, let's start with Palmer Jr. Things are going rather well for Jolyon, aren't they? GP2 title. Sadly, though, um, opportunities in Formula One... Not wonderful at the moment, would you agree with that? I mean, how are things looking uh,
1: absolutely yes, I think uh, first of all Julian's, uh really has done an amazing job this year i think he's uh, he's not only won the championship, won the g p two championship but he's also won it with with quite some style he's he's led the championship from the end of the first event all the way through to the tenth event. At Sochi, um, the whole way through, he's never lost the championship lead, and uh, we've got one more event to go at uh, Abu Dhabi towards the end of November. But what I'm, what I'm perhaps even more uh, pleased about and proud about is the level of racecraft that he's demonstrated on the way to getting the result. He, you know, he's not just carefully picked up points. Kept out of trouble. He's kept out of trouble, but he is renowned for his uh, uh, for his hugely uh, effective overtaking techniques and racecraft. And uh, I have to say, it's a real it's a real joy to watch him in virtually all of the races when uh, uh, when he's when he's hunting down somebody in front of him. You just know he's going to have a go at overtaking. And when he does so, he manages to do so, I'd say better better than anybody else in GP2 for quite some time. And um, he does say so without locking wheels and without crack rattling into the side of them and uh, bullying his way through. They're just very, they're very incisive um, sort of bam moments. And then he carries on to the next one. So, um, but anyway, moving on to the next part. Is I he mean, qu-
0: quicker than his dad, maybe?
1: Yeah, he's definitely quicker than me. I, I think uh, he's he's certainly, he's certainly a lot better at overtaking than I was. And, um, and I was, I, I was Perhaps more technical, and I think a fair bit of my success came from being um, absolutely obsessive about getting the optimum set up, thinking it all through, um, and then giving myself probably a better car than most others around me. But through 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 hard work and. Uh, sure. um, but having said that, I used to enjoy the street circuits as well. Had my best results at tracks like Monaco. So perhaps I wasn't too bad on the wheel either. But um, as you say, Rob. Moving on. Yes, there the, the probably never has been, in some ways, the worst time to try and get into Formula One. Uh, there are very, very few seats available. Um, there are a lot of people trying to get them and the levels of funding required of uh, uh, to obtain many of them have never been higher.
0: Sure. Um, Formula One isn't everything though, is it? I mean, it's obviously the ultimate ambition, but it's not everything because the Endurance, World Endurance Championship is very, very strong at the moment.
1: Yes, it certainly is, but I think you have to be very clear that having had a career going up through the single seater ranks with Formula One as the target, um, the the absolute focus is um, to try and get a Formula One drive, and um, I've no doubt Julian deserves it, and I think he'd do a very very good job. I think he was uh, if he was in a uh, in a in a, in a competitive car, um, then I think he would be getting podiums and um, and and having a very very strong career. So Formula One is certainly the focus, but um, having said that. One can't guarantee a seed in Formula One by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, th- there's, there's no doubt that the uh, LMP1, that Sports Car Championship, WEC, is, 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 is very strong. And it's great to see more manufacturers coming into that as well.
0: Um, as somebody who is now a very senior figure in the whole UK motor racing scene, you must also be pleased because there are lots of great young Brits. I mean, there's Lynn, there's Stoneman. It's a good time for British motor racing, isn't it?
1: Yes, it really is. And I've just come, in fact, last night from uh, Silverstone, where the two-day McLaren Autosport BRDC young driver appraisals are going on. And I uh, was with Derek Warwick and Ian Titchmarsh at a dinner last night, um, as well as the six finalists from that, too. And uh, th- th- there, are some, there are some big talent coming through all the way from, from you know, the first step in, a, in our own BRDC Formula 4 championship. George Russell, 16-year-old George Russell, has done an outstanding job in that winning that championship and it's been fiercely fought as well going into the very last race of uh, the 24th race of the 24 round championship there were still four people that could have won that championship so it was it was tough for him but um he 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 came through and as you say in other championships too um we've got we've got a a whole uh, spread of talent at various stages um, and uh, ultimately one just hopes that um whilst whilst some of them one or two will make formula 1 there's no doubt the majority won't. But then if uh, if the sport can be healthy in other areas like uh, sports cars, t- t- touring cars, then those drivers can find professional um, driving careers should they seek it as they get up higher and if they don't quite make Formula One.
2: Jonathan, uh, talking just a few days before Austin, we, you know, in the last week we've lost, or seemingly lost, certainly into administration, two Formula One teams. Mm. Um, what's your opinion of um, the situation that F1... T- I mean, who would be a t- an F1 team boss at the moment? It's, it just looks like a... An impossible task.
1: Yes it does really and I must say it's very very sad to see both Caterham and, um, and Marussia disappear certainly in, um, from Austin and you know maybe forever I really don't know hopefully not hopefully something can come out of it and they can continue in some shape or form um, and um, I think it's, 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 it's particularly sad for Marussia actually who've, uh, who've had um, they've tried as hard as they could you know they've had big investment from Andrei Cheglakov. Um, he he's he's sunk tens of millions into Formula One over the last uh, the last two years, and he, he, which is fantastic of him to do that. And then from the team point of view, running the team, I mean John John Booth is somebody who I have huge respect for. He's done a great job with Manor, and um, he's led that team with his colleagues Graham Loudon, um, Mark Mark Hines has been involved there as well. Those guys have really given it their all um, to try and make Formula One work, and sadly have failed to failed to be able to do so. And I think that the fundamental problem with, with Formula One at the moment is that the costs of participation are just way in excess of the revenues that can be generated, particularly at the, at the back end. And you've got such a gap there that at the moment it's only being teams have been involved or staying involved through, through sort of dreaming and just hoping that one day they can realize some value in the team to compensate for the ongoing trading losses year on year. Um, or, or that something will change, or that they'll 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 get some funding somehow to make it work. And a lot of people, I'm afraid, in the last few years, and to an extent, it's always happened, but not at this scale. Um, just just keep going with with amb- ambition um, and, and dreams until really the pain of the losing the money finally catches up, and uh, and they have to stop.
3: Do you, uh, Max Mosley was on BBC Five Live yesterday, I think, saying that the solution to it is to give everyone the same prize money. And then you can make as much sponsorship as you want. So Ferrari's always going to get more sponsorship than Marussia. I mean, is, is that model workable? Is that, I mean, you're, you're not rewarding the winners, you know, with the prize money, but that's
1: one solution. Well, um, I don't know enough about it to say that this rule or that rule or that that, that sort of structure would definitely make it work or otherwise. But I do think that, I think it's probably fair that those who are more successful uh, perhaps can get a bit more prize money, but it should probably make a relatively small difference I think uh, I think if you look at the premiership football model There is a much more level distribution of funding towards all the participants with a smaller percentage of variation depending on on performance and uh, That would seem to be uh, That would seem to be a, a far healthier way to go and I think but I think probably one of the one of the problems that um, exist from changing the current structure, which has evolved through uh, understandably pushing and shoving for better deals from all the key, all all the participants, um, is that once you've built up these very big teams with six, seven, eight hundred people, it's 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 quite it's funny well, it's, it's very difficult to actually say to them right you need to have 300 you, you, need, you need you need to shed at least half your people in a year you know you, these things need to be they've they've gradually grown up and i suspect they'll they'll have to gradually you know come back to a more sustainable model
2: in contrast as a business just out of interest how many people do you employ at MSV?
1: we have about 500 employees of whom two hundred two hundred and twenty 220 or so are full time th- throughout throughout the whole year um, and the other 300 are seasonal, really, coming in from March until the end of October when the major, major um, events are on.
0: Can we talk a bit about the state of um, the sport in the UK, Jonathan? Um, if you don't know, nobody does. Um, h- how much impact do you think that the circuit of Wales will have if, if it's built? Well, um,
1: firstly, I don't think it'll get built. It it's a completely unsustainable business model. Um, the level of investment uh, that that project requires has hasn't got the snowballs chance in hell of ever being commercially viable for anybody. And uh, and actually, I think it's a travesty that public money, that our taxes or you know, are, are, are going in to fund that in in to any extent at all. And that's happened so far. Um, uh, the circuit. if you look at, I Sil- mean, Silverstone is struggling hard to try and to try and survive at the moment. Um, and uh, with the burden of the Grand Prix and the and the delicate uh, uh, sort of financial model of running a Grand Prix, it's, it's it's not easy to to actually make a profit once you've paid the rights fee for it and um, and you get the the gate that you have and all the costs of running these things. The costs of hosting big events, just from an operational side, are huge. So, and that's Silverstone, which is established. And it's um, got a great catchment area, great history. Um, and the the, the, the chances of, uh, of of the Circuit of Wales ever being viable are, are, are just nil. It just will not be. Um, but anyway, it, it's possible, I suppose, that it might get built. And if it does get built, it'll probably... It'll it'll take a bit of business from uh, from from circuits, perhaps some of those closer to that western part of the country. Not really from us, because our circuits are generally around on the east side. But it'll only be for a few years, and it'll end up being a bit of a white elephant. I'm sure of that. And um, uh, but anyway, I, I I really don't think it's ever going to get built.
2: Speaking of Silverstone, um, with everything that's going on there at the moment, you, would you ever be tempted to add that to your portfolio? I'm. Rev- I'm, uh, I'm very, very fond of Silverstone. It,
1: it's, it, it, it's a great circuit, and in fact, I think the latest layout, although it's maybe a little bit long, is a great racetrack. We get a lot of very, very good racing going on at Silverstone. Um, they've had some big challenges. Um, I think, uh, um, in some ways, it hasn't been run as well as it could have been. Um, and if the circumstances were right and people would, you know, if were interested in me or MSV getting involved, we certainly look at it carefully.
0: I feel a monopoly coming on here. So, <laughs> Jonathan, um, this is a big question, and we don't really have time for it, but just briefly, how, how have you managed to get all the circuits, Cadwell, Alton, Snetterton, Brands, h- how have you managed to get them as running as successfully as they are when everybody said, oh, you know, motor racing in Britain is, is had it. The, the spectators don't come anymore, it's all on television. So how have you done it? Um, I
1: think it's essentially by looking at the business right from the grassroots level in terms of actually being out there on the spectator banks, wandering around the paddocks, just seeing what the customer what, what experience the customer is getting, and also just just thinking, what would I like to be getting if I was coming to this circuit, what would matter to me?" And um, yes, it's 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 good racing. But as we all know, it's it's things like a friendly welcome. It's a neatly presented, yeah. it's a neatly presented circuit, cut grass. I mean, it's the basic things that people know. I'm 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 fastidious about. Um, you know, it, it's good food, clean toilets and all these kind of things, um, and, but just really having a passion for the sport and having a passion for, uh, for neatness, I suppose. I mean, I, in, 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 uh, in some ways, people can perceive, particularly with my, with my track limits, uh, uh, passion that um, it's not always a positive thing. But I think, having yeah, said so that, I think it is. Um, but I just, I, I love things of a high quality. And that doesn't necessarily mean having to throw huge amounts of money at things. And indeed, if you, you, you have to be very careful to make sure that we can get high quality without spending disproportionate amounts of money, which ultimately have to be paid for by the consumer, by the customer. Um, and it's getting that balance right. But the majority of things that people really care about actually don't cost huge amounts of money. But the other thing is about it is that to achieve the standards we've got and whilst they're very good, they can always be improved and we always keep trying to improve them and we are continuing to improve them. And I think that's the key thing that it's rather like having a restaurant or a hotel. You could, you just can't set up the whole machine push the green button once you've sorted it all and let it run for various years. you know for a few years and let it let it churn it out it's continually ongoing every day there'll be little things i'm chasing little things that uh, um, things that all all my team are chasing and we every day we have new ideas where you know the graphics team out there the people doing race events it's a it's a continual it's a continual process and it's a fun process overall um, of of just relishing the challenge of making such a wonderful sport and historic venues successful, and having having the thrill and and satisfaction of people enjoying coming to our venues, enjoying club racing. I don't think I've, I was at Snetterton last weekend. And um, I just like chatting to odd club competitors as well. I have a huge amount of respect for club racing. I mean, I started that way in sports cars. Um, But these people who, you know, they're working hard throughout the the weeks and then they they put their, you know, their Fiesta or, you know, Lotus on the back, Cater on the back of a trailer and they flog up to the tracks and, uh, and you know, they get it off. And Their family's all there helping and, you know, changing the wheels and things. And this is fantastic. And it's... um, and you know, I have huge respect for these people because they don't need to do it. They could be going off, uh, they could be doing all sorts of things with their leisure time, but they're choosing to come and go motor racing and they love it and they have a passion for it. And it's very, very important that we, that we try and make, well, it's, if, we, if we want our businesses to be successful, it's important that we try and understand and address any little area we can to make that, uh, make that pleasure for them even better you know, year on year.
3: I do, we mentioned that you arrived in a helicopter this morning um I was reading the lunch with you did um with simon taylor uh yesterday actually, and you said in that that you actually when you come in um to brands especially on a race weekend, you always do a few circles looking at the car parks where the traffic jams are what you know what's filling up what's not is is, is that something you're still doing on a on a weekly basis?
1: Well fortunately, I don't need to really now because our team who are very very very, very good. We've got some excellent circuit managers, um, and Giles Butterfield, Group Operations Manager. We've got a very good team, and a, and many of the early um, sort of big works that we had to do have been sorted out largely. Um, it's always the you know things things wander a bit, and um, uh, but overall the level of um, the, of, of organisation is, uh, is, is, is very good. Traffic handling is very good. And so there are fewer things to look at now and fewer snags to pull up on than there were 10 years ago. And so there should be.
2: Sorry, just a quick question on <coughs> 2015. There's a, obviously a big subject on the horizon um, in terms of British motorsport. Um, is there room for two junior single-seater categories with the MSA formula now having been created and your own Formula 4 championship running? What's your, what's your opinion?
1: Well, yes, there will be room. There is room, and there will be. Um, is it good for British motorsport? Probably not. Um, I'm disappointed. I have to say with the MSA for taking the approach they did in introducing their um, their version of uh, FIA F4 in this in this country. You know, four years ago, single seater racing was in pre- well three or four years ago. Even now, apart from our own championship, single seater racing in this country has been in very, very bad shape. The levels of grid for Formula Ford have been going down and down. And we all know that Formula Ford used to be the used to be the main single-seater championship or championships throughout the country. Okay, when I was doing it back in the 70s and 80s, there were, there were three or four different championships, all with sort of 20, 25 car grids. But um, through not really understanding what could be afforded, the Formula Ford has, has dwindled. Um, and then Formula Renault stopped, of course, a few years ago because of the, c- the cost got out of control. Uh, there, was, there was very little single-seater racing going on in the country, and that's why we introduced the BRDC Formula 4 Championship, which, uh, which I launched in September 2012 um first year 2013 last year extremely successful i mean all of our cars 24 cars were sold straight away and it's been a hugely successful championship with some with some great talent low cost it's done all the things we really wanted to which is provide very close racing at low cost with good looking cars safe cars and it's been extremely healthy um i was aware of the fact that at some point the fia wanted to introduce a a, um, an international f4 f4 regulation which is which is great it's a good thing to do um however when it came to the uk i, I did say to the msa look i think it, we'd like to be look at being involved in that however Um, we do need, I do need to give our competitors, our teams, um, three years lifespan out of the current cars they've got, which was 2013 to start with, 2013, this year, 2014, and next year, 2015, which is what we are doing. And I said, look, we'd be very pleased to be involved with it and have a look at it, if it it can start in 2016, um, at which point it's the logical end of the life cycle of our current car. But um, unfortunately, they... they, uh, didn't want to do that, and they wanted to come in and compete with us um, and introduce the regulations uh, for their MSA Formula uh, um, Championship. Um, so yes, we're going to have a you know we're going to have a battle next year. Uh, to be honest, I, I'm I'm very very confident that our f 4 Championship is still going to be the place where where the top talent's going to be, and I think where competition will be tougher. It'll be more affordable, that's for sure. Um, and uh, but having said that. In 2016, we will be moving on to a new car. I think, as well known, we've 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 um, um, ordered 26 of the new Tatus um, FIA F4 cars, and they'll be running from 20, um, 20 yes 2016.
0: Um, we like to delve back into the past on the Motorsport Magazine podcast, Jonathan, uh, because a lot of our listeners and our readers are more interested in the past than the present. Um, you started out in club racing, as you mentioned earlier on today. You had a, an Austin Hilly Sprite and a Marcos, and then you went Formula Ford racing. and how How did you find? How did you become a doctor at the same time as as doing all that? I want to know.
1: Well, I was racing at club level in sports cars, mod sports, actually, in 1976, 77, uh, um, and. Yes, what I do, 75, 76, 77, that's right, the three years of that. And I I was a medical student at Guy's at the time. A bit of a part-time one, I have to say. I spent far too much of my time um, fixing cars, going racing, having them blow up, coming back, taking the engines out, stripping them down, getting them repaired. And uh, I I used to manage probably about two or three days medicine a week, and then the other four (laughs) or five days were spent racing and preparing my own car. Um, for the next next weekend probably a good um, thing
0: you didn't become a doctor then well <laughs>
1: i did become a doctor actually no i mean a um, practicing
0: doctor. well i did even
1: practice um so then i uh, then i moved to formula ford and again again my big passion was was obviously racing um i qualified in medicine um in fact i'd i'd i got to uh, after four and a half years and i was six months away from my finals and we took the mock finals as, as you do and um I, I failed so miserably that I was actually even horrified with myself, thinking, my God, I can't, I can't have wasted four and a half years of my life purporting to do medicine without passing this. So I, I, I absolutely um, had a complete swatted like there was no tomorrow for six months. Um, and um, I used to spend, having said that, I was still going racing, but when I was driving my truck up to Croft or wherever it was with my Formula Ford in the bag, I'd have, as I was grinding up the M1 or A1, I'd have, I'd have sort of medical notes strapped to my steering wheel, um, you know, learning stuff as I was grinding along. But anyway, I did manage to get through my finals. And then I did work, having qualified, I worked for a year as a junior hospital doctor in hospitals in Sussex, in Cookfield, in Brighton, um, before then thinking, well, I'm going to take a sabbatical year off from medicine. I had actually elected to go on a GP training scheme, thinking that, uh, as my father was a GP, and he, he he had enough time to do other things and was based at home, and it seemed quite a nice lifestyle. So I thought I'd be a GP so I could carry on racing. Um, and... Uh, I'd enrolled on a GP training scheme, but then I, I uh, thought, well, I'll take a year off to try and go motor racing full time and see how it went. And that was when I moved to Formula 3. Um, West Surrey uh, Engineering was my sponsor. Lovely guy called Mike Cox, who's still around now. In fact, I'm seeing him in January, which is fun. And um, he was my sponsor in Formula 3. And that was, we were, we were lurching from race to race then. We, we really, uh, having started off and done about the first four or five races and led the championship, things were clearly going well. But it gave Mike a real dilemma because he was only a relatively small business and he really just couldn't afford to fund the rest of the season. And uh, we were lurching from race to race, gathering money through selling stickers and getting odd bits of sponsorship. But somehow we got there and became Formula 3 champion. And um, and then, of course, then that really was the end of medicine, because then having been Formula 3 champion, I moved to Formula 2 with Routt Honda, two years of that. Um, European Formula 2 champion in 1983, and then finally that step into Formula 1 for 1984.
0: Do you have any regrets? I mean here you are sitting on top of your empire, you could have been a doctor, you could have been a Formula 1 world champion maybe, now you're a businessman, which, which has given you the most pleasure?
1: Oh, I think, um, I think overall the business, um, do I have any regrets? I mean, not, not hugely. I mean, I'm sure we all have loads of things, detailed things we all regret in our lives. Um, but I think when it comes to, if we take motor racing success, no, I'm pretty contented with, uh, with how I got on, and the results I got. I, had I got into a competitive car like a Williams or a McLaren, yes, I'm sure I could have won Grand Prix. I probably wouldn't have won a world championship. I might have been one of these guys that got sort of third or fourth. But, you know, I wouldn't really have deserved to win a world championship. I, I, I wasn't as quick as, as guys like Senna and, and, and Prost. Those guys really were of another level. And Nigel, I mean, Nigel Mansell, I mean, he was, he was far ballsier than I was. Um, so I think, in truth, I, I achieved the level of results in international motorsport in Formula One. That, that I probably deserved, which was deserved to be in Formula One, midfield Formula One, um, but, probably, but probably didn't deserve a really top line drive, if I'm being brutally honest, um, unlike, unlike Jolyon.
3: <laughs> <laughs> when um, obviously sat here, you know, you're looking out onto, onto the brand circuit, um, Damon Hill and Jackie Stewart famously stopped racing and that was it. and They didn't want to do any more. Um, do you ever get a sort of, you know, competitive sort of thought when you're looking out there thinking, you know what, I, w- I wouldn't mind doing a bit more of that?
1: not really no i i suppose i was relatively unusual in stopping racing completely and pretty cleanly really um and i think that was because for me um you know racing racing took a lot of time it, it, it i was totally totally focused motivated on going motor racing and doing that is pretty draining in its way um and i think having having got as far as my skill level and opportunity was going to take me, which was obviously Formula One for six years, um, that then I'd rather just stop and move on to something else and um, something else whereby I could devote my energy and um, and uh, and passion and um, and ambition really. Um, I, I, I certainly didn't see Formula One driving as being the be-all and end-all of my sort of career, it was it was a it was a a, a passing phase, a wonderful phase, but it was a passing phase. And um, you know, retiring from racing as a Formula One as I did at, I don't know what it was really. Was it probably 33 or something like that? Um, then I got a I got a great background. Um, I'd obviously got a reasonable amount of of uh, uh, of, of i say fame, but certainly I was I was quite well known from being in Formula One. I moved to doing the TV commentary, um, and that sort of public awareness was certainly a help, but more, more particularly I think the experience I got in coming from all the way up from my starting season in a Frog-Eye Sprite through to Formula 4, Formula 3, you know, Formula 2 and Formula 1 and, and having essentially achieved it all myself. I mean I, I didn't have a father who was around and certainly didn't have any, have any money to put into it, so I had to sort of fight my way through to get where I had and uh, frankly I'm pleased I did because um I learned so much from that and and again that level of 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 motivation and fight and ambition applied to other things like the business here as um has served me in good stead and uh, and I really really enjoyed this next and i would say far more important phase of my life which is running the business um developing these circuits and contributing to national motorsport i think and 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 to an extent international motorsport
0: um we need to take some questions from our readers and our listeners and we've, we have a lot of them. You're a very popular figure today, Mr. Palmer. Um, there's there's one here which I quite like. It comes from John Browett. And uh, he, he'd he love to hear your recollections of coming over the rise at uh, Eau Rouge to be confronted by Philip Streff, broadside in the Tyrol. <laughs> I imagine as a doctor a couple of things must have gone through your mind. Well,
1: yes. So that 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 was a spectacular incident, wasn't it? Um, I think it was lap two of the Grand Prix in '87, the the Belgian Grand Prix, and um, yeah, I I, uh, I was a car, I think there was Philip Streff ahead of me, and then maybe somebody else could have been Capelli or somebody, and then and then me, and we, and of, of course in. In those days, as as now indeed, although the fuel quantity is a lot less, we used to start the Grand Prix with, I think it's about 180 litres of fuel, which is probably 130 kilos. Um, And uh, anyway, going up uh, through Eau Rouge, first lap, cars heavy, bit of bumping around, I came over the brow to be confronted with just basically smoke everywhere. Um, clearly somebody had gone off, I didn't know who, I couldn't see anything, all I could see was smoke. So in those situations all you can do is just break and just go into it and hope to God you don't hit anybody. Um, but that didn't happen, I, mean, what he, I, I did break hard, um, but then as I braked hard and went into the into the smoke, um, there was an enormous bang and obviously I'd hit something, and uh, as, it all, as I came out the other side, the whole left side of my trail was gone, and I sort of got out of the car and looked behind me, and there was Philip stress Tyrel in two pieces. I think the engine was off the back of it and the tub, and I thought, oh my god I've, you know he's stressed and I've killed him um and um uh, I, I, it, it was but he was fine actually um and actually what was what was what was pretty irritating for me is that um um is that the spare car, although it was his fault, Philip had lost control of his car on the, going up through a Rouge and I think he'd, he'd, he'd oversteered and spun and gone to the barrier and ricocheted back um but um he was the biggest his his was well, it was basically his fault but he got the spare car because it was his turn so <laughs> i wasn't very happy about that but um but no there was there wasn't much time to think about anything it it was uh, it was a very very dramatic moment and um it could have had far worse consequences for us both was thank it goodness it didn't
2: froth job from ken or
1: um well i i, I guess it was really i can't i must have i can't really remember <laughs> Um, but um, I mean, there was another time, in fact the, the, f- the first Grand Prix, well the Grand Prix at Brands Hatch here in 1984 uh, when Philippe Allier and I were driving for Ram and that was another race in which both the, both the Rams were out, Philippe on the first lap I think coming down to Graham Hill and then me at, um, me at Clearways a few laps, about another 10 laps later so that was two events when both, both, the, te- both the team's cars have been out but um, no, certainly dramatic there at Spa
0: um, okay, Davy Fisher um, wants to know, did your heart skip a beat, <laughs> and shouldn't think it often does, does it, uh, when you were named alongside Berger as a McLaren driver for 1990 by the FIA because of their ongoing dispute with Senna, did you think the... You remember that? You must remember. Yes, that. I do. <laughs>
1: yeah, the, uh, I must say that was uh, that was the kind of opportunity which I, wh- when I when I uh, when I retired, well, I didn't retire, When I stopped with racing with Tyrrell at the end of 1989, which is largely a consequence, I have to say, of of John um joining the team in mid-season. You know, I I I started the season with Michele Alboreto as my teammate, and. Um, and, you know, he was the kind of ex-Ferrari superstar, race winner, etc. And um, by mid-season, I was outperforming him quite, quite significantly. And um, which I, I think he probably found uncomfortable and basically he left. I, have, I never, never did ask Ken why. But anyway, he left and I thought, well, that's it. I've now asserted myself at the head of Tyrrell. Um, and that was fine. I had some kid from Formula 3000 coming to be my teammate. So I thought, oh, that's no big deal. Except we did the he Came for his first Grand Prix, and this was, of course, Jean Lacy, the three thousand champion. And I think I qualified ninth, and um, this guy qualified. Jean qualified fourteenth, and he—he he, he was, was a bit something, because he was so effusive in praise for me after the, me qualifying ninth, and I couldn't quite understand it because I thought, God, you know, you've qualified fourteenth. Um, but what I, you know, soon realized is that he couldn't understand, Sean could never understand how anyone could ever drive a race car faster than he could. So the fact that I managed to qualify ninth, even though I had five years of experience, he, you know, he thought was, he thought was incredible. Anyway, um, the next Grand Prix, he was, I think, f- 16th and I was f- uh, 15th. And then after that, he blew me away. But so at the end of that season, and I joined McLaren as a test driver, but then uh, um, t- t- with, with the idea of actually having, the idea that, that if I could get into joining McLaren, if there was a slim chance of getting a Grand Prix in a Connacht McLaren, that could totally uh, transform my career. Um, and actually being named alongside Berger was about as close as it came. Um, but um anyway. Things could have been different, but loads of us can say that.
0: What what effect did it have on you, Jonathan, when a lazy was quicker than you? Because as a driver, confidence is a hugely, hugely important thing, isn't it? I mean, did did that dent your confidence quite a bit?
1: Yes, I mean it certainly did, and so it should have done. I mean there's no way if 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 your confidence doesn't get dented when your teammate blows you away, you're a bit stupid really. Um certainly if if there isn't if there isn't a a technical reason for it um but you know in all of that, Jean and I got on very well it, it, uh, he i had to respect, you know, I, I did respect the guy, and I think one of the thing you have to do in life is try and be realistic about um and an objective about situations and this guy had come in and you had to say he's doing was doing you know he was very quick um and um uh, and they say he and I got on well as, as, as well. But of course, the other thing that made it hard in those days, unlike today, is that there just wasn't the data. You know, today you go and look at, uh, look at the screen, and within ten minutes you see exactly where he was quicker. Uh, whereas in those days, all you had was a lap time. And if a lacy went out, went around Monza four tenths quicker, all one sort of tended to do is just, is just drive quicker everywhere which of course often meant that you overdrove it in corners where you were going pretty well before and you still hadn't really quite worked out the gaps where you needed to find the time. So it was a lot harder then without data to actually um, improve yourself by reference to your teammate and that's one of of the biggest single thing that's changed I'd say um, between racing now and then and and differences between teammates largely continued as they were just because apart from just trying to go quicker overall there was a very limited amount you could ever learn from what he was doing you might follow him here and there somebody might be out on the track watching and say oh what well, he's using a wide line here or tight line there but that didn't happen a great deal and um so it was quite tough then
3: do you think there's sort of too much data now in terms of you know if lewis Hamilton was saying earlier in the season that well what's going to happen is that as soon as i've finished practice neko's going to look at my data sheet and he'll be just as fast as me in next practice um he was obviously quite frustrating for him, but I mean, is the too much? Do drivers get too much help now or is that part of the business?
1: I think it's part of the business. You can't change that. Uh, it certainly means that your teammate is going to be able to learn a lot more from you uh, than than he could without the data. You, you can't really screen the data and it doesn't help the overall team effort if you do. So it's in the team's interest to for data to be shared. Um, you know, I can remember actually at Singapore uh, in 2013, the first the first GP2 race there, when Jolyon was very very quick, and his t- he, was, he was with Carlin then, and Felipe Nassau was about just under a second slower than him, and um, in the practice session. And was well out of it, but then by the time he looked at it and see what Jelien was doing, and he was breaking like so much later in these places. The gap closed right up, and he qualified second to Jelien's pole. You know, so and that it was a bit galling, but that's just, that's the way it is. In other ways, it can help you. You know, he there were times when he was quicker, and you know, you can, you can, you can help from that. Um, but you know, I think the other thing is that it's all very well seeing it on the data, seeing it on the screen, but actually to do it in in the cockpit, if it was that easy, then. All teammates would end up doing the same sort of thing by the end of the weekend, but they don't. So I still think that the, there, is, there is enough of a gap between what you see on the screen, what you know you should be doing, and what you can actually do, um, that it, it it doesn't totally erode um, individual, individual skill
2: and talent. I always think it's, it kind of balances itself out these days, that there are so few testing opportunities for young drivers to actually get in a Formula 1 car and, and prove themselves. Um, yet when they do, they should be better prepared than ever because of the quality of simulators these days, and as you say, the quality of data. So when you do get your chance, you've really got to take it, haven't you? There's there's no there's no second chances almost.
1: No, exactly as you say. Between between simulators that do a very good job at getting you dialed into something, it's. I think there's still a significant and and so there should be a significant gap between actually doing it in the car and doing it in the simulator. But the simulator. Um, is 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 a, an amazingly sophisticated learning tool, and um, and 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 you can certainly see talent in the simulator as well. I'm I'm sure of that. Um, and yes, Formula One testing is so limited now, which is a great shame. I mean, I think the amount that used to go on. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's all a good thing.
0: Simon Hurd would like to know Jonathan about your recollections of racing for Britain going back to 1981, and the reason he wants to know. I think you'll like this. Is that he gave some of his pocket money to Racing for Britain?
1: Well, Simon, thank you for doing that, and I'm grateful for your for your support. Uh, it was hugely important. The time I got backing from Racing for Britain, it was uh, me and David Leslie in Formula in Formula Three, and there was a, there was a chap. I he's still around, I'm sure. Steve Sydenham, um, who was tremendously enthusiastic about the whole scheme, put a huge amount of effort into it um and both david and i were extremely grateful for the support for racing for britain both in terms of cash but also in terms of morale and support and it was lovely to have people come up to the paddock and say oh i've contributed i'm part of it it was a, it was a lovely scheme um as ever i suppose the amount of uh, the amount of money it takes to really make a meaningful difference to the costs of drivers going motor racing Unfortunately, is substantially in excess of the levels of money that can be generated by you know, passing the cap around um, to you know, very well-meaning and helpful fans. Um, but it all helps, I have to say. Um, and it's just great, I have to say. On that, it was such a great tragedy. Of course, poor David losing his life in the in the plane accident with Richard Lloyd um, and uh, and uh, and the others too. So, but and they, those were those were certainly. They were certainly um, they were fun days in Formula Three. Uh, they were challenging days as well, and racing for Britain was just one of the sources of funding that, again, I gathered together to try and complete my Formula Three season in 1981. But it's an important important contribution. Thanks, Steve.
0: <laughs> uh, this one comes from Mikey. Uh, it's about zack Speed. I don't I shouldn't think they're particularly fond memories for you, but anyway, he, he makes the point that they manufactured just about everything on their own. He compares them to Ferrari, which I think is a bit iffy, but anyway. Um, Was that a positive for you when when you decided to go to Speed? I mean, in the sense that you are a technical person, you like all that stuff, you're quite knowledgeable about all that. Did you feel that, you know, you could make a contribution there because it wasn't just a a kit car, if you like?
1: Well, I think the first thing to say is that I was Extremely grateful for the opportunity at Speed anyway, because I'd come into Formula One in 1984 uh, with the RAM team. I'd, I was Formula Three champion, a Formula Two champion. I was just, I was just obsessed with getting into Formula One. I knew I had to get in off the back of the Formula Two championship win, or it may never be. So, um, fortunately, John McDonald was somebody who, who actually, for, he, he he had a surprising amount of. Uh, uh, of of sort of enthusiasm and and support for up and coming British drivers and um uh, and he he was great for me I mean he and I were you know quite different in many ways but um we actually got on we got on very well indeed and uh, he was keen for me to drive the car now whether he had anybody else maybe he got no choice but um I, don't know, I think I think he was genuinely very keen to have the British Formula Three champion and Formula Two champion rather European Formula Two champion in the Ram. And uh, he he did me a deal. It was two hundred and fifty thousand pounds to drive the car in those days, which is you know that was quite a lot of money. A lot of money. um, Actually, it's not as much money as you think. I never I did I did actually to look and see recently what two hundred and fifty thousand pounds would be in today's money, and it was only about eight hundred thousand pounds. You know, it wasn't it wasn't even a GP two budget, let alone Formula One. Um, But anyway, I mean that that was a back end car. But so anyway, I did the season with uh, with with RAM, got some experience, but really, where I be going? I mean, I didn't. I'd really, I can't claim to have enhanced my reputation with it. I mean, the thing was barely capable. We, we were running around in sort of qualifying eleven seconds slower than the lead and the, than the McLaren Porsches at the time, for example. So you, we were just in another world. But you know, it was experience, and you were going around, and you were wrestling with this thing, and battling with Alio, and uh, the other people were at the back of the field with the with the sort of uh, poor man's heart, uh, four-cylinder turbo engine. Um, and at the end of the year, um, Andrew Marriott actually uh, came to me and said, look, there's this new German team starting up. At this point, I had no idea I was going to be in Formula 1 at all for the following year. Um, new German team starting up, called Zack Speed, just chat, Eric Zukoski, around the Zach Speed Capris. Um, and they're looking for a driver, and I suggested you be a good guy to do it. And I said, yeah, great. You know, I mean, it's anything to continue in Formula 1, particularly not having to find any money, because I was probably out of money. Um, and, uh, so, uh, I met Z- Eric Zakowski, um, and, th- and the team we went out to Niedersissen and, uh, I was, I was thrilled to get the drive. I was continuing in Formula One and they paid me 50,000 pounds, which was, um, which was great. So, you know, the way I went into it was I was, I was very, very pleased to have the opportunity and I don't think it is unfair comparing them with Ferrari. That, that's exactly what they were trying to do. They were, building their own chassis, gearbox, engine, the whole thing they were doing themselves. The only problem was they had about 1% of the budget of Ferrari. So um, they but they had a lot of um, uh, they had a lot of a huge amount of motivation um, and drive. I mean, Eric Zukoski was I haven't seen Eric for a long time, but um, he, he, he had a huge amount of passion and um, he used to drive people a bit mad. It was a bit, you know, he was a bit mad um, in a way. But um, his level of energy was huge and he's a lovely guy and um he used to love it when things went well but it, um it was hugely challenging for them he, he was very close he was a very good friend of um of Paul Roscher who was the BMW motorsport guy so eric got quite a bit of help i think from how to make a four cylinder turbo engine work reasonably um and a very good uh, engine guy called Norbert Kreier, uh, i think was his name um, team manager, Helmut Bath. I mean, I've got fond memories of that, those times, actually, because, yes, it, it was, you know, it was very crude in those sort of times. And they were starting off with all this ambition and, 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 and these dreams of becoming a, a successful Formula One team. Um, I remember the first time we drove with the engine and we were t- first test at Imola and uh, and 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 in those days, I remember chasing behind I think it was, Jacques, uh, it was Jacques Lafitte. I think he was in a Ligier Renault or something at the time, and I could keep up with him in testing for about um about three or four laps, and by lap seven or eight, the valves will start burning out. And the thing would only run for about 10 laps and then the valves were had it, the low compression left and we had to change the engine. I mean, that's how, that how basic things were in the early days and gradually got the engine to last longer and because then it used a lot of fuel and, and it, was, it, was, it was intriguing.
2: Speaking of opportunities, I'm sitting here in your office, Jonathan, looking at uh, a lovely black and white print of you going into Druids in, uh, in what was, of course, the 3rd Williams. That's, that was where you got your opportunity third cars, obviously something that's been talked about a lot now. You, with Jolien in mind, that must be something you'd be in favour of.
1: Yes, I. on the face of it, I'd love to see third cars happening in Formula One, uh, because that would mean that there will be more cars on the grid again, more drives, and more scope for not just more drivers, but probably more drivers with a bit more focus on the talent than the money. I'm sure money would still be a factor, but perhaps perhaps less. But, and it's a big but, the problem is, um, Formula 1 is is so much more sophisticated now than it used to be, and that was 1983. Um, I have to say I was extremely grateful to Frank Williams uh, and Patrick Henn for running a third car for me then. I was their test driver. I'd been their test driver for two years at the same time that I was racing in Formula 2. So I was dr- driving in Formula 2 for Route for Ron Toronac. And I was the Williams test driver, their first test driver at the time. We did quite a bit of mileage and had some, you know, intriguing tests. Things like the Williams six wheeler I was testing as well.
0: You were the only man um. ever to drive it competitively, as well. By the way. Well,
1: on the up uh, by well, the Goodwood you're referring you, you to, set, probably set, around Yeah, very quick time I did, up Goodwood yeah, Hill. yeah. No, we ha- it was they were they were wonderful days. But um, anyway, Frank and Patrick were 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 fantastic to me and said, look, we we'll run a third car for you here at the, at the European Grand Prix at Brands Hatch. We're alongside Keki Rosberg and Jacques Lafitte, and, and unfortunately for poor old Jacques. Um, those were the days when we had the normally aspirated Cosworth DAV amongst the turbos. The tyres were all very hard Goodyear tyres designed to live with turbo power, which meant that if you had a normally aspirated car, you were you you—it's very hard to generate tire temperature. Now Keki with his flamboyant style and tremendous car control, could do that, and he chucked the thing around like a big go kart. Um, Jacques and I were, were were more sort of conventional and uh, just neater, I suppose, in a way. Um, and found it harder to, harder to generate the tyre temperature. And unfortunately for Jack, I, I did get on the grid in 25th place and Jack missed the, missed the cut in 27th. So he can't have been too happy with third cars himself then. But um, anyway, coming back to today, I mean, Formula 1 is just clearly it's transformed as a business. The, the, the sophistication, the size of the teams. At Tyrrell, we had, I think, 70 or 80 people in, in, in the 80s. Um, and now teams have, some teams have, I imagine, Mercedes and Ferrari are probably 10 times that amount, 700 people, people yeah, 1,000 probably. people. And ru- the whole process of running a third car um, is just very, very complicated now. And it's a big extra challenge, I'm sure of that. And, of course, it also has to be paid for. So um, running third cars w- is something which um, uh, that... On the face of it, I would love to see for Jolyon's point of view, um, but I do fully appreciate that it, it, it that it's it's not an easy thing to happen just to roll out a third car, build a third one, and go and throw some fuel and tyres at it. You know, it, it, there, there is a, a big logistical challenge of doing that, whether it's pre- preparing the car, transport, garages, the whole thing, and, and indeed who drives them, point scoring. I suspect that won't happen for next year. But.
2: Do you think there's any argument that um, Formula One as a sport, and maybe the team's part of this, should offer more opportunity, though. Um, one idea that came up a couple of years ago in our magazine, John Surtees had the idea that um, there should be um, success should be recognised by opportunity, by either a test or a race seat um, with a, with a with a team for the following year, and that Formula One could, with the, with the amount of money that Formula One makes, that by putting it back into the sport rather than seeing the money leave the sport, that opportunities could be created with with prize drives and so what have
1: you it's a nice idea but i think flawed when you really think about how it could be executed i mean who runs the car how competitive is it who pays for it who has the burden all those sort of things it never has been done really on a structured basis in formula one and nor in truth do i think it needs to be i think the big challenge is that formula one uh needs to move to a more economically viable model for the team. So I think everybody's aware of that. Everybody agrees with that. That um, but somehow, if, if we have more, more cars out there, um, and in fact, I remember in 1989, my last year of Formula 1, there were 38 cars, I think it was, trying to qualify. Pretty uh, Hungary. Yeah. And, you know, in those days, and okay, that was too many. But if you had, I mean, even we had 24, we've had 26 cars, 30 cars. I think my first year, there were about 27, 30, 28 cars. Um, if we could have somewhere between 24 and 26, 28 cars in Formula One, that would, I think, mean, and if the costs were significantly less in 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 proportion to the revenues teams could generate that's the key thing it's 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 you know can you be viable as a team if you um but if we could do that then you'd find the young drivers like Jolyon um and, and and carlos Sainz and these other guys alex lynn who are, who've done very well they would find drives because there'd be teams like john mcdonald Zach Speed. there'd be ken tyrrell giving martin brundle an opportunity tolman took uh ayrton senna albeit with a bit of money you know those drivers who have done very well um, generally can find a bit of money, and even if they can't, if you've got more cars and the businesses are um, are kind of breaking even, let's say, or even losing a little bit, if not making a lot of money, then those drivers will get opportunities.
0: Well, the, the, way, it, the way it worked for you going, going back to the 80s was the Jim Clark Cup, which you won, which was kind of Formula 2, Level 2, if you like, wasn't it? Well,
1: not really. I mean, Jim well, Clark, right. the, 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 the Jim Clark Cup was something that was just introduced for. I think it's just one year. It was when Formula One engines were changing yes. from being turbo to normally aspirated, and uh, and teams that again to, to save money, teams that wanted to move to a normally aspirated engine um, could do so in 1987. And uh, and then to give a because those cars were going to be running 200 horsepower less than the turbos, uh, there was a separate little mini championship for them. Uh, there were six of us doing it actually. There was me, Philippe Streff. I think you know certainly Capelli, uh, Ivan Capelli was doing it. Um, I can't remember who else now actually. Um, and uh, and the, and the and the winner of that sub. Uh, championship was the Jim Clark Cup, yeah.
0: But but what I'm saying is that the new engines in Formula One now, the hybrid engines, are the cause of a lot of the increase in costs. Huge, huge increase in costs. Had they, you know, I mean, Patrick Head said, I think after the Monaco Grand Prix, they could cut it almost by 10 times if they hadn't had to develop these brand new power units
1: yes it's it's uh, it's clear that the cost of the power units now has been a major inflationary factor in in Formula One um, Costs are probably from what I understand I think probably at least ten fifteen million euros a car more by running these engines than they were with the previous engines and you have to say the previous two point four liter v8s were a very very good engine they, you know, very good performance sounded good now these new engines these new, what do you call them engines these, these these new power units are unquestionably very, very clever, very efficient, and tremendous tributes to technology. Um, weather, but but they are costing a great deal more money, not just in the basic units, but in the amount of resource and manpower I think it takes to service them and keep them going. Um, and uh, I don't know whether the... I, I can only assume that the FIA, did when they introduced the regulation for these power units, did not appreciate how much more expensive they were going to be because the global climate was still pretty poor. I mean, it's 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 getting better now, but they're still not really affordable. Um, so I can only I can only assume that uh, these cost far more than they were expecting. Um, but having said that, they're obviously sophisticated and uh, complicated, and that was likely to cost a lot more money. You know, you can have V6 turbo engines. Um, producing similar power without all the complexity of the recovery systems for a fraction of the cost. I suppose you could say you could look at IRL when they have a, I don't know what power that is, seven, eight hundred horsepower probably from the, what is it, 2.64 litre or something like that, uh, V6 turbos and I think the engine price for that is probably a half a million dollars a car or something like that. So it's kind of ten percent of the cost that they have in IRL Um, and you know I think having Having all the sophistication of technology um, is is great. Um, it's great if it can be afforded, um, but at the moment it, it it seems that it can't be, um, and that um, hopefully, I mean, it, what it would be ideal, I think, is if the if the costs of these sort of power units can come down, uh, because they are they are unquestionably tremendous uh, feats of engineering. To have 100 kilos of fuel for a Grand Prix uh, and go quicker—it's—it's it's, it's fantastic. And then sadly, it's the sort of thing which I think the the people ultimately paying for this, for the whole sport, which is the TV viewer, there's the fans, the TV viewer ultimately, or the or the spectators. I'm not sure the message is really being conveyed across to them, or they really—I mean, how much they care, I don't know. Um, but uh, I, I don't think the the uh, engineering achievement of these very expensive power units has, has been appreciated enough. Um, and so we're left with something which at the moment is quite a cost burden for the teams.
2: I, I was just thinking, Jonathan, that you know, you've been a successful businessman now for um, a long time. You've created your own championships. You have these wonderful circuits that you're um, you know, looking better than ever, running really well. Is it telling that you've never been tempted to become a, a team boss? it's not a sustainable business to be a uh, you know a, a boss of a racing team in this country
0: yet <laughs>
1: <laughs> well it, it 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 probably is yes and i I'd, uh, when i was looking at getting involved in the business side of, of of motorsport after after my own racing career um i've i've always tended towards asset backed businesses and to uh, and to have the freehold of these circuits um is is quite uh, is quite comforting when you 're particularly when you're looking at getting funding for for acquisitions when you've got when you 've got uh, an asset behind the whole business um, but of course with 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 many businesses and uh, formula one teams one doesn 't have that you know but um, listen i i i 'd love to get involved in formula one if i thought, if i thought there was a viable business there and certainly at the moment um, I'm not, I'm not clever enough to be able to work out how to make a viable business out of Formula One for me.
0: You're not the only one. No. Um, I've saved a couple of questions up for the end because we're running out of time, I'm afraid. Um, just very quickly, we did a podcast with James Weaver recently. <laughs> James Weaver's already brought a smile to your face and James was telling us that you did actually administer to him on one occasion with your medical expertise. Do you remember this?
1: I just said I don't you better remind me but James was James was a great friend he's 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 one of the most he he was he's been a tremendous friend th- throughout my racing career yeah. when I when I was in sports cars I first met James here at Brands Hatch actually when I was um <clears throat> I was testing my old Marcus and uh, he was racing for Hawk very much hand to mouth as we all were in those days and um and I got chatting to him and I I realized at that point that as a no, I, what was I, 20, 19 years old or something, 20 years old I suppose, that I wasn't going to get my Formula One drive by being spotted by Ken Tyrrell running around in this old Mod Sports marker, so I better get myself into single-seaters. So James, <coughs> uh, who was blagging cars from Hawk, and bla- it's all about blagging stuff, I have to say, so you, you man- in, in those days you managed to get a car manufacturer to loan you a chassis, um, and in, those, in that year, actually, 77, that was Hawk, David Lazenby from Hawk, and then your next challenge was to go and get an engine manufacturer, a Formula Four to, to go and lend you an engine, and that was, mm. I'm afraid, the victims in that were the Wardropper, uh, Alan and Doug Wardropper from Scholars. Um, so having blagged your car and blagged your engine, then you went off and shoved it in the back of your truck and trailer and went off racing, and that's how. And James and I, we were teammates at Hawk, and and uh, we raced Formula 4 together, and then ultimately Formula 3.
0: Do we remember, Ed? Uh, you, you prompted me on this I, one. Yeah, Do I can't remember? quite I remember exactly how the I story I think it was in a sports
3: car race, wasn't it? It was, well, he had a, Didn't he have quite a big crash and got knocked out, I think? I mean, you, and you drove him back to London. Oh, that's like, right. Um, yes, yes. And yes. was administering him. Yes. Uh, certain drugs on the way back that weren't <laughs> strictly for humans. Oh, yes, that's so. right. It does ring a vague bell, I'm afraid,
1: <laughs> but I can't, I can't, I can't remember. I can't remember too much more than that. What I can remember about trips to and fro the race meetings, we used to. I think I, mean, I shouldn't be saying it, but I think we used to. We used to have as competitive a racing on the roads between the tracks and he, he did back to that. London <laughs> as we did on the track, actually. There was, used to be someone like me, James, Terry, yeah. Tasson, and it was, like a, it was like a Tour of Britain epic on the way back. Uh, oh, within the speed limit, of course. <laughs> um,
0: but um, Thank you very much. Thank you, Jonathan. And thank you for our breakfast in your very uh, smart office overlooking this wonderful, wonderful Brands Hatch motor racing circuit. And we've seen some bikes going around this morning. Beautiful autumn morning. Perfect time to be at Brands. Many thanks, Jonathan. Right. Well, we'll be back with our next uh, Motorsport Magazine podcast very soon. Uh, next month, Ed, I think another the next one. Yep. Good. And uh, thank you all very much for listening. Download it as many times as you can because the more times you do, the further up the charts we go, and we're getting more and more popular. So thank you everybody for your support, and thank you, Alan, for looking after us on the sound this morning. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. Oh I'm a monster, 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 monster,